0: You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. My name is Ross. I am not one of your pastors. I am a random dude that walked in off the street a few months ago for Thursday night church and Pastor Josh decided to put me to work. (laughs) So here I am, and it is a joy to bring the Word to you this morning, Um, especially as a guy that grew up in the Boise area, and back in the 80s when dinosaurs and hair bands roamed the earth, and I was a uh, teenager and I was in youth group that did youth group activities with the youth group that met here at what was then Central Christian Church, I have played many games of sardines here. And if you don't know what sardines is, it is the best game of hide-and-seek ever because the way it works is when you find the person who is hiding, you hide with them in the space that they are, and so does everybody else. And pretty soon, too many people, too small a space, sardines. And this is the finest sardines facility that I have ever encountered. So um, now that I'm here again, can I just say I love what you've done with the place? It is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. I love the, the merging of the old and the new you know, LED lights and a thumping sound system, but all of the old stained glass windows. I love that you still have pews. That's great. But it is so good to see what you have done together to make this a worship venue for God's people in this corner of the neighborhood. So well done. I commend you. Since the new year began, Pastor Josh has been leading us through a study of the book of Nehemiah and helping us to explore the theme of rebuilding the ruins. Last week, we came to the end of chapter 6, and the walls that had been in rubble for 150 years, now, thanks to the efforts of the sommelier of the king of Persia, has been, they've been rebuilt In a miraculous 52 days, God works in mysterious and wonderful ways. So the story is over, amen, let's beat the Baptist to the breakfast buffet. We're done. I'm kidding. We are only halfway through this book, and Josh gave the rest to me to finish the series. So you're going to have to listen fast. Uh, But if I could summarize what is happening in Nehemiah chapters 7 through 13, it would be this. The walls were not the point. The walls were not the point. We are going to see the walls dedicated today, but what's most important is that the people are dedicated. And the walls were simply a tool They needed to be rebuilt, and the reason that they needed to be rebuilt is because God had been warning the people for centuries that if they persist in their disobedience and in their idolatry, that God was going to remove his hand from protection, and the forces of chaos were just going to take over, and the people were going to be led to their own destruction, but God also promised in his steadfast love that he was going to bring a remnant back, and he was going to restore the people. And that work had begun a century before what we have been reading and studying, when in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, a man named Zerubbabel had led the people, the first wave of exiles, back from the Babylonian captivity, and they rebuilt the temple. But the temple was not the point. Fifteen years before Nehemiah, in Ezra 7 through 10, we see Ezra himself return to reconstitute the priesthood and to restore the temple worship practices, and as important as those were, those were not the point. In the last several weeks, we've seen the walls rebuilt, needed to happen, but the walls were not the point. And looking into today's text, uh, or at least a small corner of it, we see in Nehemiah chapter 7, and the story continues in Nehemiah chapter 11, that Nehemiah instituted a sort of draft so that 10% of the people living in the land would move into the city, build houses, so that Jerusalem could come back to life and the people could have a cultural center to their lives. And that was important. But even Jerusalem was not the point. And I'm gonna let you read Nehemiah 7 on your own time. It's one of those chapters that threatens to disrupt your read through the Bible in a year program every time, <laughs> because it's just names. Names, 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 names. It's it's like doing your daily devotions off of the end credits of a movie. And what's even weirder is it's practically the same list of names that we read in Ezra 2, which is a census of the first exiles to come back from the land. Why would Nehemiah be dropping that in right into the middle of this narrative about the walls being rebuilt and now about to be dedicated? Well, it's because Nehemiah wanted the people to understand that work that God had been doing in and amongst them, dating back generations, was being completed, was being brought to fruition in their own day, and he did not want them to lose sight of the fact that that generational project was now being completed. What had been begun by their great-grandfathers, their great-great-great-grandfathers, was now being brought to fruition in their own day. And that brings us to chapter 8 which begins less than a week after the completion of the wall. So starting in verse 1 of Ezra 8, excuse me, Nehemiah 8, and the people gathered as one man into the square before the newly rebuilt water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all and skipping ahead to verse 8, they read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Rebuilding the temple, reconstituting the priesthood and the worship practices, uh, rebuilding the walls, repopulating the city, none of that was for its own sake. All of it was leading to this moment. All of them were important means to this end of God's end of rebuilding a people, a unique people in the world dedicated to him alone and restoring them in community with him and with each other. I love what you've done with the place. I hope it's not the end of your work. Because as beautiful and wonderful as this facility is, it's merely a tool. It's a place for God's unique people in this neighborhood, in this corner of the city, to be reconciled to God and be reconciled to each other. And if you are new here at Hill City, first of all, welcome. Uh, We are glad that you are here and Pastor Josh will be in touch with you soon about when it is your turn to preach. You're laughing, you think I'm kidding. I am kidding, please come back next week, it's going to be fine. Uh, but if you are new here, it's perhaps because the unsettledness of the last few years make you feel like your faith is in ruins and needs to be rebuilt. And if that's the case, we're glad you're here. Thank you for giving this community an opportunity to be part of the healing that you seek. It's possible that you are here because you're just wondering what this faith stuff is all about, and there's a newness and a mystery to it that we hope we can help you uh, to unlock. So thank you for being here and being a part, we hope, of helping you to find what you're looking for. I promise you that what you think you're looking for probably is not what you're actually looking for, and I speak from experience. But whether you are rebuilding your faith, whether you're new to the faith, whether you're settled in your faith, all of us can see in in this chapter of Nehemiah 8 four principles that I think we should take from our text today about what it means to be dedicated to God. And the first principle from Nehemiah 8.8 is this. Dedicated Jesus followers are formed by God's Word. And by formed, I don't merely mean informed. You can know a lot about the Bible and not be changed by it. But when the Word of God penetrates our hearts and changes what we want, it's transformative. When the Word of God penetrates our minds, and changes the way we think. As we read in Romans 12, it changes everything. The word goes so far beyond merely informing us. It transforms us. It forms us into likeness, And we become a people who obey God, not because we're afraid that he'll punish us if we don't. And we become a people who obeys God, not because we're hoping that he'll reward us, if we check enough boxes, but we become a people who have been so formed by the Word of God that we obey Him because why would we want to do anything else? There is nothing more attractive to us than who He is, and we love God for who He is, not merely what He can do for us or what we hope He won't do, for, uh, do to us. We learn, as we are formed by the Word of God, to love Him, and to love what he loves. And the word has a powerful effect on these people. They hear it, it's explained to them, they understand it, and they burst into tears. It has a powerful effect on them. And to get a sense of why, read chapter 9 this week. It is a long confession of the people, reflecting on generations of faithlessness, generations of idolatry, generations of disobedience, and generations of God being faithful to the people in spite of it all, and bringing about in His steadfast love His promise to restore them. It's a powerful chapter that speaks to what it means to be shaped by the Word. Um, And Nehemiah told the people that Hey, it is, there is a time to grieve over our past. There is a time to be sad over the mistakes that we have made, but today is not that day. Today is to celebrate the steadfast love of God and his, and his faithfulness. We read in Nehemiah 8.10 that he said to the people, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our God. Do not be grieved for the joy of God. The Lord is your strength. Which is our second principle from Nehemiah chapter 8. Dedicated followers of Jesus are formed by God's joy. There There are times to grieve and there are times to repent and it is appropriate in those times to do so. But this was an occasion to celebrate what God had been doing and was doing among the people. And in chapter 12, you can read about the big celebration that the people had to dedicate the walls and to celebrate the completion of the work. Nehemiah brought all of the, the leaders and all of the musicians together, and he divided them into two rock bands. And Nehemiah led one this way around the walls, and Ezra led the other one that way around the walls. And they're up on the walls marching, and the musicians are playing way too loud, and the singers are singing at the top of their lungs, and the Symbol players are banging their cymbals together as loud as they can. And I'm sure down in the city there were kids lighting candles and old people clapping their hands over their heads saying, the music is too loud, but it was amazing. It was a party. It was a celebration. And these two rock bands go around the city. They meet on the other side and they gather in front of the temple to dedicate the work that they had been doing to God. It was great. But I do suspect that part of the reason that the people were weeping is they had been through a lot recently. Remember, the timing of this whole wall reconstruction project was not great. There was a drought in the land, and the taxes were due. And that double whammy had caused incredible financial distress for many of the people. They were having to borrow at high interest rates just to feed their family, and some people were so crushed by the burden of that debt, which clues in the text would indicate it's about double today's mortgage rate, Uh, they were so crushed by the burden of that debt that they were losing the fields and the homes that they had put up for collateral, and then just to pay the Persian taxes, they're having to borrow again against the only thing they have left to put up as collateral their own children, and some people are losing them as well. And when Nehemiah learns what is going on and learns that the people that are collecting this interest and confiscating this collateral were not foreigners but the very people themselves, he calls them together and says, this is not good. It is not good. We have to finish this work. The walls need to be rebuilt. We cannot stop this project amidst these difficulties we face. But we should not be treating each other this way. Um, Remember, dedicated Jesus followers are formed by the Word of God, and the Pentateuch specifically prohibits these practices that were causing so many people on the lowest rungs of society so much distress. There are specific commands in the Pentateuch against charging interest to a fellow Israelite. There are specific commands in the Pentateuch against seizing vital property that people need to survive as collateral for two reasons, the text tells us. One is so that you may live together as brothers in the land, but second, God says in language that echoes the Exodus, I will hear the cries of my people in their distress. God cares about this. So, Nehemiah calls the people together and says, we were called to be different. We cannot do anything to make the drought go away. We cannot do anything to make the taxes go away, but we can do something about how we treat each other in the midst of these circumstances. Persian law may allow you to take advantage of your brother this way, but the law of God does not. We need to make this right. We may live under Persian rule, but we cannot act like Persians. We cannot be shaped by the patterns of life in Persia. And we cannot be formed into becoming Persians. We are a unique people. We live by different standards and principles. A reality I've been wrestling with for several years now is this, that we are always being spiritually formed, always. The question is formed by what, for what, into what? Who is forming us? What are we being formed into? For what purposes are we being formed? My day job is I teach church history at Boise Bible College, and if you ask around the college, the students will probably say that the one thing I am most known for right now is not uh, paper standards. (laughs) It's monks. I read a lot of dusty old monastic books, and they have had a transformational effect on my life because I find in the Desert Fathers and other early Christians, I find many principles From them, a lot of wisdom on how to live out my life uh, in in Christ faithfully, how to recognize the log in my own eye and to engage in the often humbling and miserable work of plucking it out. In one of my classes, I teach students to read and utilize a 600-year-old book called The Imitation of Christ by a fellow named Thomas Akempis, and one of the... Uh, passages in this book that that struck me, and I can't get through a page of of Thomas without uh, having to sit down and think hard, but he writes, In the morning make your plans, in the evening go over your conduct, reviewing how you behave this day in word, in deed, and in thought. For in these you may have displeased God or your neighbor. And if you've gone through any kind of recovery ministry, that principle may sound familiar to you the vital necessity of self-examination is nothing new. It's a very, very old and important principle. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians twice to examine themselves. One of those times, specifically in connection with the Lord's Supper. And I remember growing up hearing that passage read for communion meditations. I honestly can't remember anyone teaching me how to do that. I mean, it's a live possibility that somebody was trying and I just wasn't listening. But I don't remember ever being taught how to examine myself. Maybe people just assumed I knew how. But it's really hard to take that look in the mirror and see ourselves for who who we really, really are. A lot of us, all of us, struggle with self-deception at some level. Fortunately, I have a whole bunch of friends. Most of them have been dead for hundreds of years now, but my dead monk friends have really, really helped me with this. And they have, uh, what they think and what they've been teaching me has really been life-changing for me. Here is a simple monastic process or tool or method for prayerful self-examination. And I've heard Pastor Jake and I've heard Pastor Bradley mention it. So many of you may already be utilizing what's called Examine or the examination of conscience. This form of it comes from a fellow named Ignatius of Loyola who lived about 500 years ago. But the principles predate even that. The first step here is, first of all, to begin with thanksgiving. Begin with your joy in the Lord. Reflect on God's goodness in your life. Start there and get yourself aligned with a heart of gratitude and thankfulness before moving to the second step, which is to ask for grace. This seems like such a... Duh. It never occurred to me to ask for God's help in this. God searches me and knows me. He knows my heart better than I know myself. If I really want to know myself, maybe I should ask the one who knows everything about me. God, please grant me the grace to discern What is going on in my head and in my heart? What's going on in my thought, my desires, my deeds, my words, my actions that may be causing an obstacle between me and complete relationship with you? And then the third step is to having asked for grace from God to see ourselves as he sees us, to examine our thoughts, examine our words, and examine our actions. I call this looking for my keys, which I rarely have to do because my keys always go to the same place every time so that I don't lose them. Uh, It is not always this way in my family, but this is the way I operate. But when you're looking for your keys, you retrace your steps. And that's what this self-examination is, is to think back through your day about what you did, but also the words you used and the way that you used them, and to think about what's going on in our heads, what's going on between our ears that may be malforming us and causing us to love something greater, uh, something, love something more than God. Step four is simply to repent And this is not self-flagellation, it's not beating yourself up, it's not shaming yourself, it's simply acknowledging, God, you're God, and I'm not. Thank you for your grace, thank you for your forgiveness, and I repent of these things that you are revealing to me by your grace, and then finally, ask for grace from God to grow, to be a little bit further down the path, a little bit more like him tomorrow than I was today. This process of self-examination is so important because if we're not careful, we can be completely unaware that we are being malformed and deformed by uh, the forces at work in the world all around us, by our work environment, by our internet and podcast diet, by our media and our entertainment consumption, by our social media engagement, by any other thing that might be teaching us to love all the wrong things Or maybe to love good things, but to love them more than God, which is probably the most seductive form of idolatry that we all face. Self-examination is vital because without it, we can begin to act like Persians without even knowing that we're doing it. So, Nehemiah is teaching us an important principle here, that dedicated Jesus followers prayerfully examine what is forming us. And that awareness is important, but it is not the end of the story. It is also vital that we replace the habits that cause us to drift into feeding our fears and feeding our anxieties and feeding our lusts and feeding our greeds and feeding our angers and our sloth and our pride, and all of that with habits and practices that help us to grow in the love of God and what He loves. And we see exactly that happening again at the end of Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 13. We read on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and all the other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the newly rebuilt water gate and at the square of the refurbished gate of Ephraim. There's booths everywhere. What is going on? This sounds like the Western Idaho Fair. (laughs) Booths sounds weird in our context. They make me think of a guy yelling at me to throw this softball into a milk jug so I can get a six-foot-tall plushie. Why are the people in booths? Well, the Feast of Booths, and your translation might say tabernacles or maybe shelters, this is like a big national campout. It's sort of a harvest festival, according to Deuteronomy 16, and when you read in Numbers 29 the epic number of sacrifices for each of the seven days— of the Feast of Booths, just reading through that chapter starts to feel a little bit like the 12 days of Christmas, after all. You know, you got 12 bulls from the herd and 14 male lambs and grain offerings and two rams and don't forget the wine and and bulls and lambs and a goat for a sin offering. I mean, 12 days of Christmas. Um, So what is it with this harvest festival Hebrew Thanksgiving? All of this is a reminder to the people of something that was in their past and was crucial to their identity. There's a scene in the movie Moana where Moana discovers the ocean catamaran that her ancestors had used to travel from island to island in the vast reaches of the South Pacific. And for Moana, who's been stuck on an island her entire life and she is not happy about it, this is revelatory. It sparks a sense of realization about her identity, and she cries out, we were voyagers? We were voyagers! And she begins to run all over the place in front of her grandma. We were voyagers, we were voyagers, we were voyagers. Why'd we stop? And I could tell you a hundred movie stories with that trope in it about how coming in contact with an artifact from the past Helps people to realize something about their future. That one is special to me simply because of my own family and a ferry trip that we took one time, where my wife and my two daughters, we were on our way from Lewes, uh, Delaware, to Cape May, New Jersey, on a ferry to see my son graduate from Coast Guard boot camp, and my daughters are both courageous young women with incredible talent. But their courageous is directed different. Courageousness is directed differently. For my older daughter Jody. You put her on a stage reciting Shakespeare in Iambic pentameter, and she is in her element. The courage just bursts forth, and it's wonderful to behold, but her courage does not extend to <laughs> boats. So she is turning green. Meanwhile, her younger sister, Erin, is up on the top deck at the rail... She has got her hands outstretched. She's got the wind in her hair singing at the top of her lungs. See the line where the sky meets the sea? It calls me, and no one knows how far it goes. It goes to Cape May, New Jersey, but living in booths with whatever branches and boughs and leafy stuff they could scrounge was intended to remind the people of an important part of their identity from their story how god had redeemed them from the egyptian captivity it was intended to remind them of something. And you can read about it in know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, because I am the Lord your God. Living in booths, just basically shelters made out of tree limbs and whatever they could find, was intended to remind the people, we were homeless? We were homeless. And then God brought us to this wonderful place, and he made us a people here. It is no accident that God wanted the people to remember this piece of their history during the harvest time, because there were no harvests in the wilderness. The people had manna, And the manna was necessary, and God had provided for for it. But by living in booths for seven days, during the time when God had provided grain and grapes and all the fruit of the harvest, they were reminded of the journey that brought them there through their ancestors, living in booths and eating manna for 40 years in the wilderness. The Feast of Booths was a formative practice intended to remind the people of who they were and of their utter dependence on God. And we need such practices in our lives so that the day to day rhythms of our lives don't shape us according to work schedules and political calendars and football schedules and any other thing that is happening in our life that threatens to push God to the edges. This is why Christians for centuries have followed the liturgical calendar so that the rhythms of our lives are shaped by God and the things of God rather than by the patterns and the routines and the difficulties of life. We recently just came out of the season of Advent, which is designed to uh, put us in a place of expectation, of living in expectation of Christ's coming as we relive the expectation of those people so long ago, before the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. In a couple of weeks is Ash Wednesday, which this year coincides with Valentine's Day. That's going to be interesting because two cultural currents are going to come at cross-purposes with each other, and it's going to be fun. Ash Wednesday kicks off the season of Lent, which is intended to be a time of self-reflection and self-examination as we view our lives through the lens of Jesus and his temptations in the wilderness. Now, I want to emphasize that nothing requires you to practice these things. They are not, they are not going to save you. They are not going to earn you points with God. God does not need you to do them, and don't let anybody like me or anyone else tell you differently. God doesn't need you to do them, but they can be helpful for us if done correctly to pattern our lives in such a way that we grow in our love of God and what God has done for us and love the things that God loves. They can be tools to help us better love God, there's a reason in the, in the Protestant world we've set these things aside because we have seen them abused and we have seen them done badly and we have seen them tempt people to think that they can earn things from God, which is not the point of them. But many Protestants are reclaiming them and practicing because they're recognizing I am being malformed by all of the things that I encounter during the day. I deliberately need to put myself in the path of things that are intended to set my mind and my heart on things above. These big annual practices can be formative, but the daily routines are also very, very important. In Nehemiah, we have nine instances of Nehemiah praying, and Pastor Josh has highlighted many of them over the course of the last month. Last week in Chapter 6, we saw Nehemiah's opponents trying to uh, threaten his mission, to threaten his reputation, to threaten his life, Hey, Nehemiah, why don't you meet us in this dark alley so that we can assassinate you? And at each of these steps, we see Nehemiah do something habitual. He turns to prayer. In Nehemiah 6.9, a simple prayer that you can memorize, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hand. In that moment when I'm tempted by my fears, when I'm tempted by my anger, when I'm tempted by my anxiety, when I'm tempted by my appetites, God, strengthen my hands, strengthen my heart, strengthen my spirit so that I can seek you and you alone. One of the most powerful spiritual disciplines that we can embrace is the pivot to prayer. And yes, my name is Ross and I just said pivot because that is what I do. And if you don't get the joke, ask your Gen X or millennial neighbor. Uh, This is especially important when we learn to recognize the habits of our heart and mind that are rooted in fear, rooted in pride, rooted in anger or defensiveness or any other impulse you can think of that causes us to think damaging things and to say damaging things and to do damaging things. Here are a couple of short prayers that Christians have used for centuries that you can memorize and that you can pivot to in those moments when you feel those habits of heart and mind trying to take you in a direction that in your spirit you do not want to go. One is called the Jesus Prayer, and this has been used by the Orthodox for centuries. It's taken from a parable, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is a simple, this is not a magic formula, it is simply a recognition, God, I need help, I am in over my head, please save me. In your mercy, provide the help that I need in this moment to look to you and to be strengthened by you. A second is taken from Psalm 70, verse 1. Make haste, O God, to save me, Lord, come quickly to my aid. Again, not a magic formula, not something that earns you brownie points with God, this is simply an acknowledgement, God, I need you and I need you right now in this moment. Please come quickly to help me. The pivot to prayer is not an easy discipline to learn because it requires us to examine ourselves and recognize those cues that we have that cause us to turn to our anger or turn to our fear or any of the other impulses that we are subject to. We have some bad habits of the heart and mind to unlearn as we grow in the habit of prayer, But learning to recognize our need and immediately ask for help is a valuable and powerful and life-changing tool. Evagrius Ponticus, a a fifth-century monk, wrote, Prayer is the flower of gentleness and freedom from anger. Prayer is the fruit of joy and thankfulness. Prayer is the remedy for gloom and despondency. And I feel that last one, because when I'm down, I don't want to pray. I don't feel like it. But that's when I most need to. So to recognize that impulse in myself and to ask God for help in that moment. Here is the fourth discipline that our text teaches us. Dedicated Jesus followers prayerfully embrace Christ-forming practices. And we have been given a formative practice by the Lord himself, one that we make a point of engaging weekly. Uh, I invite you to take out the elements if you pick them up on your way in. And if you did not, just please signal the ushers and they will be brought to you. And uh, let's go ahead and just do crinkle time now. Go ahead and, and get those ready, but hold them for just a moment, please, because if you'll allow me, I'd like to guide you in a short time of directed prayer as we celebrate this together. Surprisingly, we have no record literally no record of the people actually living in booths from the time that the law was given for centuries the people for this and other reasons forgot their identity because they in part because they did not engage and embody in these practices designed to help them to remember the first time in all of scripture that we actually see people celebrating the feast of booths is in Ezra chapter 3 When the people who returned to the land under Zerubbabel from Babylon rebuilt the temple and they practiced, they they celebrated the festival of booths. And they were already living in them because they had just gotten off this road trip, so maybe it's perfectly appropriate for them to do so. Of course, the timing was right, but in a very real sense, those people were embodying the exodus. Just as God had brought their ancestors out of Egypt centuries before, and formed them into his unique people, so had God brought them out of Babylon and was restoring them as God's unique people. And that's very much like what we do here today. We remember that God has brought us out of the bondage of sin by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and he has brought us into the eternal community of his steadfast love to form us in Christ's likeness. So these elements, these very ordinary things, bread and wine, remind us that Jesus, who is not ordinary, he's eternal, he's extraordinary, he stepped into our ordinary, everyday lives. He took on that which we are. And by doing so, he made us and is making us into something extraordinary. Friends of the eternal God, as he created us to be, as he redeemed us to be through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, as he is sanctifying us to be through his Holy Spirit, we are being made into friends of God who love what he loves and are deeply, deeply loved by him. So as you hold these elements for just a moment, allow me to guide you in prayer. First, Father, we come to you with incredible gratitude for your goodness to us, goodness we know that we don't deserve, but we recognize just how good you are because of your steadfast love. And for each of my brothers and sisters here, I invite them quietly into themselves to take a moment to reflect on what gives them joy. In Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.